Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current on 89.5 FM WSOU, the School of Diplomacy and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Valentina Rejarena. Welcome to the show, and we're keeping in current with two of our CN Hall students, Sebastian Kopek and Sarah Fakik. As the School of Diplomacy's premier podcast, we break down a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? This week, we will be focusing on the Afghani negotiations in Qatar with the Taliban in attempts to bring peace to the nation after decades of conflict. We will be dissecting this topic as each of our analysts argue their respective sides on whether diplomacy is the answer to this international dilemma. Later, we will have our briefer give us an update on what else is going on this week. Now, our briefer, Brady Black, will give us an overview of this week's topic. Hello, everyone. Here's some background for this week's topic. Afghanistan has experienced interstate violence for the last 40 years, starting with the Soviet-Afghan War in 1979, which was started by the Soviet invasion with the goal of putting down insurgent forces. This resulted in the US then training Afghan soldiers that later became the Taliban. The Soviets were repelled by the insurgent groups that then began to fight amongst each other, leading to the creation of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The U.S. then invaded Afghanistan in 2001 as part of an effort to find Osama bin Laden and dismantle the Taliban from power so that al-Qaeda could not operate in the country. In 2020, the U.S. and the Taliban reached an agreement for the U.S. to withdraw that was enacted in February with the promise that the Taliban and the Afghan government would meet and discuss in March. The Afghan government did not agree to this exchange as it was not involved in the process when the U.S. and Taliban reached an agreement which set the talks back a few months. It was then agreed that the negotiations would take place in Qatar. Negotiations started in September and are currently ongoing. All right, let's do it. Um, thank you so much for each of you for joining me here via video chat. Now, my first question really is, why do we think that it's taken so long for both sides to come to the negotiating table? And who is leading these peace talks? Oh. Leave the floor open for whoever would like to start. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, a large reason for the difficulty in getting a lot of these sides to sort of come to a negotiation table is that the Taliban as an organization itself is a very fractured organization. It has sort of deputy negotiators and representatives, but the Taliban as a whole isn't a united force. And within Afghanistan itself, uh, the democratic government uh, really isn't sort of stable and is currently divided and uh, has sort of split within a coalition and obviously uh, has been really inoperable as of late. Sarah, would you like to add anything to that and tell me who is leading these talks? It took so long for the Afghan government, the Taliban, to come together to talk because the, I feel like there was a mistrust between both of them. The Taliban does not trust the government and vice versa. Also that the government knew that it would have to give the Taliban some official power in the country's governance. So they would have to implement their views in the constitution, etc. So they were afraid for their jobs and what it would mean for the people. And getting the Taliban to talk in general required concessions by the United States and the Afghanistan government. So that was hard to get everyone together in the first place. Thank you. You know, Sebastian, you mentioned that um, it's hard to get the Taliban together, especially since there's such kind of 
different groups of the Taliban. And, you know, it makes me wonder if all of them are agreeing to the negotiations and how will that affect the future of these negotiations. But moving on, what are the negotiators on each side trying to achieve and what's the biggest topics we're seeing here? Yeah, so I think the main emphasis that you're seeing a lot of is the uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops from uh, Afghanistan. The United States has already agreed to withdraw some of its troops, I believe, by the end of the month. And I think going forward, the uh, Taliban negotiators with the United States and the Afghan government uh, wish to see a full withdrawal. And this is also the sort of stated policy of the Trump administration. And it's basically to end sort of U.S. involvement uh, militarily within Afghanistan. I think that the Afghanistan government is trying to end this long war because there was a lot of casualties has been going on for nearly two decades. But the Taliban is more for taking the power back since they had it before 2001. So they are kind of using the U.S.'s withdrawal to get some of their power, whether it is to fully take control or compromise. Interesting. You know, it's, it's funny because, yeah, I do know that I believe it was Mike Pompeo, but do not quote me on that. He's the one who's also in the middle of these talks, right? He's kind of facilitating. Yeah. Okay, awesome. You know, it's given that they want to take the U.S. out of their business, they're allowing them to mediate their business. It's ironic. Hmm. Which issue do we believe will be the biggest roadblocks for these peace talks? Because I know it varies as well. Um, I know women's rights are also very um, argued. You know, Taliban want to be very religious about this. And they don't believe women can have as many rights as the Afghani government are trying to be more progressive and maybe even more... Uh, leaning towards like Western culture and allow women to start working and owning things and doing normal women things. So I've seen that topic as well to be a big issue. Well, I think that's an interesting point because the stated goal of um, the Taliban is to restore the the emirate that was deposed in 2001. And with that means the implementation of Sharia law and uh, the sort of democratic um, government in Kabul is also sort of opposed to um, the reinstatement of Sharia law. And so I think you're going to see a lot of push and pull from these two sides. I think the biggest challenge would be to compromise between having more of a democracy and the strict Islamic way that the Taliban wants. So coming together, like uh, how you said on women's rights, uh, the peace talks are in Doha where Sharia law is imposed, but women still have rights. They can go out, they can drive, they can have real jobs. So I think they should model Doha since that's where it is. And I think that would be a compromise for both parties. Uh, Additionally, I think that there sort of needs to um, sort of be more of a role for women in negotiation processes. Uh, You've seen uh, areas even like Yemen where uh, women are sitting, being allowed to sort of act as mediators uh, between various factions because they're sort of viewed as being a little bit more trustworthy. 
And I think the current Afghan government hasn't sort of expressed a greater push for women to be in, uh, involved in negotiations. And I think them being forceful about female negotiators would sort of uh, be a, a really good first step in forcing the uh, Taliban to sort of acquiesce to um, easing of the sort of Sharia law that they've been wanting to sort of implement within Afghanistan. I agree. I think they should push for women to be in the negotiations, but the Afghanistan government actually has three women in power and the U.S. doesn't. And the Taliban has seen this and mentioned it. They said the United States is hypocritical for trying to push this. But out of 45 and soon to be 46 presidents, we don't see one woman. So why should they listen to what the United States has to say? That's very interesting. I, I don't know if you guys saw recordings of the peace talks, but I did see that there were at least one woman there. She was on the Afghani government side. And then when I looked at the Taliban side, it was all men. And I was just like, oh, geez, you know, these, it's kind of like you could see misogynistic there <laughs> in the air. But I really do hope that, you know, they can come to a compromise because it is 2020. I think if the Taliban wants to be taken seriously and work and strive for a better Afghanistan, they will need to involve women in all their work. What are other international players saying about this? You know, Russia, India, Pakistan, just overall surrounding countries. Some have really big stakes in funding and intervention throughout the years in Afghanistan. What do they think about the peace talks? So the foreign minister of Qatar said the party should keep an open mind and they should focus on the future. And the U.S also agreed with this. They said that Afghanistan uh, needs to focus on future generations, but it's completely up to them and the United States should not intervene. The Pakistan foreign minister also said that there should be no meddling in the negotiations because he does not see a military solution. So it has to be political and they have to compromise. But this will take a while because of the many roadblocks that they're going through, even in these talks. And then the foreign minister of India said that sovereignty should be respected, even though that we want to promote democracy and human rights. They have the right to impose what they want, and it should be completely up to them as well. I think the sort of majority opinion that I've seen from sort of these third party states um, looking at these sort of negotiations is that they want to see a very stable Afghanistan in the future. And then uh, a stable Afghanistan is in a lot of these neighboring states' uh, best interests. Uh, China, uh, for example, wants to promote their Belt and Road Initiative, but they can't do so with an unstable Afghanistan by their border. Uh, as well, Iran, which has sort of a really weird, complicated history with the Afghani gov uh, government. And um, Taliban has also sort of uh, uh, pushed towards a more stable Afghanistan because the sort of migration crisis that's uh, resulted from so many decades of war. And I, I think that uh, due to sort of a vested interest of all these sort of third parties in getting a sort of stable uh, Afghanistan, I think the uh, there will be a lot, sort of a lot of push to uh, make sure that talks are, are ongoing.
I think the third parties getting involved is actually going to be an issue, though, because, like you said, they all have their personal interests. And although all these uh, foreign ministers are saying not to get involved, they kind of are getting involved in some way, because obviously they would want to see a stable Afghanistan, but for what? Sebastian, when you did mention, because of the migration issue, just to clarify for our listeners, it's because people are leaving Afghanistan in big numbers, right, and going to surrounding countries? Yeah, Afghanistan has a sort of um, a history of sort of having refugees spill, uh, spill over into uh, its neighboring countries of Iran and Pakistan. The Taliban itself actually uh, is a split off from the Mujahideen, which uh, basically controlled Afghanistan for um, up until around uh, the Taliban uh, came back into Afghanistan. And they basically formed uh, due to child refugees being basically taught in Islamic schools in Pakistan. And the word uh, Taliban itself roughly translates to student in Arabic. And so it's sort of these um, cycles of refugees coming into Pakistan or Iran and then having these camps in which are in very poor conditions and then them sort of just being stuck there. And this has actually become an uh, issue in Pakistan as well, where even though Pakistan has nominally been very receptive towards the intake of Afghanistan, uh, refugees from Afghanistan, even areas in the country that sort of identify with local, uh, for example, um, uh, Pashtuns in Afghanistan have started uh, there have been a, a lot more mixed reactions uh, towards the placement of migrants within or refugees within Pakistan. That's super interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, um, you know, given that we're talking about some of these neighboring countries' self-interest, I guess this is why Pakistan was like, please, enough is enough. I know military intervention is not going to be the answer anymore if it has not been for the last 40 years you guys need to resolve this now and you know given that pakistan is already um it's not in the greatest shape necessarily either for it to be taking more refugees and and it's not sustainable for afghanistan to be losing its people and especially people who are able to work you know children are able to work but do we want children running the country and its economy in the long like um, in this short term, because if it's in periods, as you said, it's not going to be sustainable whatsoever, and it's not going to be realistic for the Afghanistan um, government in general to continue and really getting involved in this international realm of relations here. You know, I believe that at this point of 2020, you know, you have to kind of put yourself into this world of globalization. And if they can't do that, they're going to have a really rough time getting out of that hole. You know, you mentioned China and its Belt and Road Initiative, which is, it's super sneaky of China. It's crazy that, you know, they they've already spread... Uh, this Belt and Road Initiative to about like 65 countries and counting. So the fact that they're kind of waiting for the right moment for Afghanistan to stabilize and say, hey, let us give you some infrastructure loans so you can better yourself and start building yourself back up. 
That's very, very, very interesting. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with that. Do we have any predictions on how the government might work with these two sides coming together? You know, just any type of theories here. I think the uh, main issue is that the uh, Afghan government is very unstable um, and without sort of US backing, um, it sort of threatens to sort of collapse or at, uh, or at the very least be forced to um, continue like essentially civil war with the Taliban. I think the uh, what, what's important is to make sure that the uh, Afghani government isn't sort of allowed to sort of just collapse like what happened to the Soviet government, Soviet government in Afghanistan back in the 80s, uh, because that's sort of what led to the rise of the Taliban in the first place. And I think though, like a lot of these third parties have vested interests, I think that if they can just sort of allow, um, and or I should say force the Taliban to sort of agree to a, a prerequisite of, uh, of terms and to agree to an extended ceasefire, I think that's a great sort of first step towards sort of building sort of Further negotiations in the future. This is pessimistic, but I don't really see the Taliban and the Afghanistan government working together in the long term. Uh, they had three short-term ceasefires so far, but they haven't been able to hold up a long-term one, and I don't think they will. Um, they haven't really stopped their attacks. There has been a lot of casualties this year alone, so I think they're just two polar opposites and they want different things. I think the government of Afghanistan is focusing on the people and future generations trying to modernize with the world, especially trying to get the help of the US and uh, creating better ties diplomatically. But the Taliban, again, is more focused on the power and keeping it strictly how it used to be. So it wants to impose its version of Islam, whether that's more extreme or, uh, you know, how it is. But yeah, I just don't really see a compromise that would stick for a long term because the Taliban is power hungry. That's interesting. Um, you mentioned that they could not keep a long term ceasefire. Um, is there one currently while they're in the midst of negotiations? They agreed to a ceasefire, but um, a few days before the talks, there was an attack on the Afghanistan vice president's convoy. So that itself, he barely survived. And then they continued to kill military troops, whether it was Afghanistan's and the U.S.'s. So mm. I don't think that they can hold that up. Hmm, very interesting. You know, as much as we'd like to see it work out, eh, you're right, they are polar opposites. Um, and it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of sad to see given that, you know, they both still believe in the words of Islam and, you know, and, you know, something so beautiful as religion should be bringing them together rather, rather than tearing them apart because, you know, it's just at this point is their radical interpretation of it rather than letting that 
be the glue that binds them together and moves the country forward. Um, who knows? I mean, in a weird way, kind of reminds me of the U.S. politics in some way. You know, it's just very far out. But I mean, I'm thinking about it as in, say, it's going to be kind of like maybe a two-party system again, Taliban just. And then um, the Afghani government, and if they were to put anything to a vote, if they really want to be a democracy, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. I mean, I, I could see that being the case where it's just going to be two-party system, and it's going to be very polarized, and I don't know how <laughs> their campaign work is going to be. Uh, I think, you know, it's either going to be something very scary or you know just try to convince people but i i hope that we can see that and you know you let the best man win hopefully they allow the people to decide how they would like to move the country forward because at that point negotiations can work but then again you know this country is for the whole nation not just for the people in those rooms. So I think they need to branch out and start keeping in mind uh, the people who make up Afghanistan. So just to wrap up everything, how do we see diplomacy being the answer in the future? What steps can Afghanistan and, and the Taliban take or the next step? to really just, 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 just concrete these peace talks, say, establishes like a stable ceasefire or just maybe make up this two-party political system or any ideas here? I think that the, um, the key to sort of getting the Taliban to sort of agree to a ceasefire is going through uh, Pakistan and the ISI, um, who have tremendous amount of control over the uh, Taliban. The only reason that the Taliban has like agreed to sort of come to these negotiations is because of pressure from the ISI, uh, which is Pakistan's special intelligence agency. And I think that if more countries were to put pressure on Pakistan, then there would be sort of more Obviously, I told you before that the Taliban is very, a very split organization, but there would be sort of more pressure to, uh, at least on the main branch of the Taliban, to um, come to a negotiation table and to come to something concrete. I think the U.S. should actually get more involved. Uh, this is surprising because I usually disagree with this, but in this case, it's different because them reducing the troops, Trump saying that he wants to pull out the troops completely by mid-2021 gave Taliban more power. They feel more victorious, and especially with other countries coming to coming into these negotiations, they think they have the upper hand. So I think putting more pressure on other countries would not be as effective, but maybe the U.S. getting more involved and the Afghanistan government being firm in what they want by compromising, but also imposing these human rights and women's rights and the Taliban has to be more specific in what they want what is their version of 
Islamic ruling. So I think they just have to figure out a compromise where they can have somewhat of a democracy and the um, Islam. All right. Thank you so much, guys, again, for joining me, Sarah, Sebastian. You guys were great. I really learned a lot here, and I hope the listeners did it as well. Now, let's tune in for this week's rundown brought to us by our briefer, Brady. Thank you. BBC reports that a 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit off the Aegean coast of Turkey, so far killing four, injuring 128, and triggering a mini tsunami on the Greek island Samos and the Turkish city Izmir. The New York Times wrote that so far over 9 million people have voted early in Texas for the 2020 election, which already states total voter turnout in 2016. The surge comes after the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, limited the number of drop boxes to one per county. The Associated Press reported that Parisians were seen fleeing the city as France enters its second national lockdown today. Due to more rising cases of COVID-19, President Macron ordered a four-week lockdown of the country, ordering all citizens to stay home at all times with no visitors. The Hill writes that a report from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services reveals that further habitat destruction and overconsumption would increase the chances of infections from animal-borne diseases, with the UN warning that more deadly and economically devastating diseases than COVID-19 could be expected if this continues. Lastly, Al Jazeera reported that Iran officials criticized the efforts made by the Minsk group in Nagorno-Karabakh, saying that the group, made up of the US, France, and Russia, have failed in their mission, as three of the brokered ceasefires have already been broken, while further stating that France and the U.S. have no real intention of bringing peace to the region. That's all for this week's rundown. Awesome. Thank you, Brady. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, assistant producer Jared Dang, technical producer Brittany Segura, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, and our interview producer Tian Fan. I'm your host, Valentina Rejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at CN Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FM WSOU. See you soon.